Hello, Noelle and James. Uh, nice to talk to you today. So welcome to the Fair Hill Farmstead Life podcast. Big welcome. Hello, thank you for having us on. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. We feel welcome. Fantastic. So uh, just to kind of bring the audience up to speed, one of the things that we talk about here on the podcast is not just how to audio things that I talk with my clients and my students about, but also interview other people who are in the process or have made that transition to a farmstead or homesteading life. Uh, first generation people who maybe had their friends and family look at them in a funny way. Other people don't understand it. So one of the things that I like to talk about with my guests is, you know, I, I want to hear about your journey. I want to hear about your passion. I want to hear about your motivation and what brought you here. Where did you start? Where are you now? And where are you going? So can we start with you guys just talking about yourselves and how you got started on this? And let's just go from there. Absolutely. It's a great place to start. We won't start from the beginning. That would be too long story. But... Yes, I, I think, you know, for both of us, we we really wanted to position ourselves where, for one, we were closer to nature. That was important to us. And secondly, to be able to move more towards producing our own uh, food. And um, that, that was kind of a big driving factor for us. We were always back at our gardeners and we had you know, successes and failures in that. But at one point when we decided to forget suburban life, we kind of went really far in one direction. We polarized and said, hey, we're going to become expatriates. We sold everything and we were on our way to Costa Rica and we were barred from entering the country in the beginning of 2020 when no one could travel. And then we were barred again because they didn't open up travel to that country for our second flight. So our, our, um, our, our makeup flight didn't make it in the window of opening. Ironically, the opening happened, I think, within 15 days of our second flight pass. So we missed two flights to Costa Rica and we thought, oh my, maybe, maybe this is a sign. We had sold two homes, all our vehicles, all our furniture, the majority of everything we owned. We really did. We didn't even have a storage unit. And so we were all in for this this type of lifestyle, but we were giving up on American soil altogether. <laughs> and when we couldn't get into the country of Costa Rica, we started to do something called house sitting, which is a really unique adventure, especially for a couple who they're empty nesters or maybe they're young and they haven't ha had kids yet. You can really taste and explore what it is to be on a farm or be on a larger parcel and taking care of animals that you don't yet own by participating in house sitting and specifically we looked for homes that were kind of in alignment to where we wanted to go in our future so our our first was in a very rural area of virginia on 50 acres with a log cabin and we were taking care of goats and a massive garden and some other farm animals like cats dogs kind of thing and we had kind of like Boots on the ground, no experience. And the woman who owned the, her and her husband who owned the farm, she coached us along the way. 
she was in Colorado at their alfalfa farm, and she would call in, zoom in to us, and she would literally coach us on how to garden, how to take care of the goats. So we stayed with her preliminarily for a couple of days, and she schooled us. Along the way, since we were there for such a long period of time, it was, I think three months. Yeah, three months. She would coach us, and we really fell in love with it. And we had, had other house sits. We've had house sits in Hawaii. We have house, house sits in uh, Portland, Oregon. So we've been to city life, beach life, you know, Boynton Beach, Florida. This one kind of got in our blood. And while we were there, we actually traveled across state borders and went looking for a 50-acre parcel of our own in a part of Tennessee that we thought was just stunning. And that was up against the Cherokee National Forest, very close to the Great Smoky Mountains. Um, and that experience um, was the catalyst really for us to just jump all in and do something absolutely, what most people would say is absolutely crazy. Our family says it's crazy. Our, our kids think it's crazy. Our James's parents tell us all the time that we're too old. <laughs> so, yeah, so that, that kind of brought us to the point where we found uh, some land in Tennessee that we fell in love with. And uh, once we got to the land, it was actually a for sale by owner. And we, we called him up and said, Hey, you know, we'd like to put, I mean, after seeing the land and he showed us, he showed us all the property. He immediately wanted to put an offer in. And uh, it was from that point on, we were in the works of planning and, um, you know, house planning, planning for animals and everything else. We've been on it since. Wow. What a story. So are you guys are no longer planning on moving to Costa Rica? Is that correct? You've given that up? Yeah, that, that, uh, that dream has kind of gone to the wayside <laughs> after we had uh, purchased the 48 acres in Tennessee. What was really interesting, Judith, is we were in close communication with expatriates that had lived in Costa Rica, originally from the States. They'd lived there 20 years, 19 and 20 years, I think, a couple. Uh, they were in real estate, and they also had a construction company. They were building incredible dome structures, these very, like, sacred geometry, earthen structures. And we were already kind of in a verbal contract with them to build. Well, we had called them after our second flight you know, within eight months of each other was not going to make ground in Costa Rica due to travel closures. And they had said, don't come here. We're going back to the States. They bought 40 acres in Missouri on a pond and their homesteading, farmsteading now back in the States. So we were kind of tipped off from a bunch of different sources that, um, to stay stateside was probably best for our future and what we really had in mind. I mean, we gave up kind of the surf life, coconut culture, all the mangoes, <laughs> which I will always miss. I mean, we just got back from six weeks in Kauai, and there's a part of me that will always be pulled in that direction. It's so easy to eat fruit. It's so easy to get calories of that nature. But there's there's something gritty and a little bit more important going on here. And I think that, um, yeah, there's, there's trials and tribulations 
with it, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. I, I know we're doing the right thing for, for ourselves and for our children. We have five children and we know wholeheartedly that they, a portion of them will end up on our land. We don't know when, we don't know how, but they're going to end up here. <laughs> wow. Why do you think that is? Honestly, I think that there's, well, we have, we have, uh, it's probably split in the middle. So we, you know, we have some, some of our kids are really more drawn toward the, you know, kind of city, city atmosphere. And then we have um, some other kids that are more interested in um, starting a family in a rural area and kind of going that route. So it, it, it just depends. And, and obviously when you're, when you're younger, things change too. So. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to me in a second about the expats who were in Costa Rica coming back and they decided to go and do homesteading or farmsteading. Um, do yeah. you, as a they, matter of fact, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, did they have more experience than you or the same amount of experience? Did they talk to you about their motivations or their worries? We have communicated with them um, consistently since um, since we were making plans to move to Costa Rica. And their worries were multifaceted. Um Costa Rica became a very unfree place very quickly, and the stipulations that were being placed on expatriates and even nationals in that country were so uh, extreme that they felt it was necessary to come back to the States, even though they had never planned in their entire married life or um, you know, the previous 20 years in Costa Rica to, to ever leave. They had built two very successful businesses. Um, in Costa Rica. So it was a huge shift for them. They are, they're in a really interesting position and your listeners may have some uh, connection with this. They are associated now with a man named Owen Benjamin, very, very controversial. But one thing he has done well is he has motivated a lot of young people to homestead. And so they are kind of the couple that's coaching those homesteaders on the ground that this particular character, he was a Hollywood actor and comedian before, who's kind of turned renegade homesteader. So they're kind of working with his populace in real time while he kind of sits back at his massive homestead in Idaho and does more of the podcasting. It's a huge following and we're not really associated, but we've been we've kind of been standing back and enjoying vicariously watching that whole thing unwind. One thing that they do, which is a really interesting concept, is they invite young people onto the land to to work exchange. So it's kind of like wolfing. If you've heard of that, a lot of people have done that internationally. Many friends of ours have done that. It's almost like house sitting, but you go to a farm and you work and you live and you eat for free, but you're really almost like an indentured servant by design, but you <laughs> sign up for these things and you learn and you experience something totally new. Well, their concept is to bring these people to the land and help them build homes that are not traditional homes. A lot of them will be somewhat dome-like in structure or earthen homes or a straw belt version of an earthen home, maybe even like a cob style. And these people will live on the land and work as farmers and live in community and um, not necessarily have to own the land. 
So it's an it's an interesting it's an interesting concept. Um, yeah, we're excited for them to see what takes place. It, it definitely opens up the uh, ability for especially the younger demographic that might not necessarily have the resources to go out and buy land, exactly. but they they definitely want to do that type of lifestyle. It's it's a great way for them to to be able to have access to that. That's great. Wow. That's interesting. I'll have to, I wrote down his name. I'll have to do some um, research on that whole situation later, but to get back to your um, journey. So you, you felt, it sounds to me like you felt confident enough, given that input from the other expats in Costa Rica, that you felt like the United States was going to be the better choice for you for this lifestyle, right? Correct. Yes, it was a combination of that. And then also the location to our children right now, all of them are still in Ohio. And with our property less than six hours away, um, it it made it um, easier transition for everybody. Okay, so what did you do? So much more accessible. Yeah, that makes sense. So what did you guys do before you decided to... um, actually start this homesteading or farmsteading life and and which which are you trying to build by the way that is a good question and i don't know if we have the answer to that right off the go because we're still in the planning stage i think we're we are really working towards more of a farmsteading so whether that's a surplus to share with with our community um we don't really know how that's going to look yet, but that's, I think, our, our goal. Yes, we know we'll have a surplus, and we know that we will sustain ourselves, and there'll be more than what we need. And so with that, we want to do something kind of interesting and create an opportunity for people to come to a farm stand and either donate mm-hmm. if they want to donate or take what they need if they need it hmm. and create a situation where those less fortunate in this community can access fresh vegetables, tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers, you know, all the things that maybe they'd be purchasing at the store, access it for free if they need it or put a few bucks in the, in the, in the can. The thing about that is, is we know we'll have enough for us. We know we'll have enough for our family. We know we'll have enough to preserve. And so there's, there's no reason in the world that we shouldn't start with giving back. And then if it moves into an, an operation where we can partner with restaurants for farm to table purchases, or we set up a booth at the Greenville farmer's market, which is quite robust and growing every year. Uh, We'll do that. We'll definitely do that too, but we're going to start by giving back to the community and making it cultural to share the surplus. Okay. Okay. So it sounds like you were living, what did you call it? The surf life coconut culture with mangoes life. (laughs) (laughs) I had to write that down. That was so, that was so, uh, that was just so off the cuff catchy. It just made me kind of laugh. It just really gave me a picture of it. Um, so, it sounds like you had that sort of a life and then you decided to go to Costa Rica and then you had this farmsteading, homesteading, edu- accidental education along the way. Then you you turned and came back and now you have the land, but now you're talking again about your future plans. So 
where are you in the process now from a bigger perspective of actually getting your farmstead up and running? Can you talk about that? Because I mean, you've got the education part certainly well nailed down, at least in certain parts. So can you talk about where you are in the process now? A lot of people in the same spot as you right now trying to figure out how to get started. Yeah. And that that was one of the questions that we, we had how, where do we start? And we, we decided to start with building our house. Um, and we, we've met others in this area that have started with, with acquiring animals. animals and fencing and all that. We felt like it would be overwhelming if we went that route without having uh, an actual place to, to so-called nest. So we, what we did first is when we bought the land, we built a little bunkhouse, um, which we'll eventually use for guests. It's just a 10 by 12 little, little we call it the bunkie. It's got just electric hooked up to it and a little wood-burning stove in there. Nothing too fancy, but it's, it's nice for... It's a queen-size bed, long yeah. bed. It's really cozy. Yeah, for sure. And then we built a, a, a pole barn so we can have storage and keep things dry. That was a huge huge success on my husband's behalf. I tried to kind of ward him off by going so quick so soon with the barn, but the barn has proved exceptionally helpful. Like our all our flooring, our hickory wood flooring stored in the barn, our huh. siding stored in the barn, our wood burning stove for the bigger house. All our, of- our windows were there for seven months because the house wasn't up yet. <laughs> <laughs> so there was just so many different building materials that we were able to keep secure and safe and out of the weather. That's one thing we did right. We built that barn and we started or the moment we had our design for the house and James kind of turned that part over to me. We started ordering all the elements that we knew we needed. And we kind of kind of got in front of the supply chain delays to the degree where when people showed up and they said, "Oh, you already have this?" Most people don't have can't get a range right now or most people can't can't get, you know, this type of siding right now. So we we were lucky in that once we said yes to this dream, we moved. We t- took action very, very quickly. Not, yeah. that, not that it all came together quickly. <laughs> it did it. It took ex- exceptional patience for each step to fall into place. But we do have an existing home. You've seen the picture of it. And we have the hickory floors are down and the windows are in and it's dried in and beautifully uh, sealed up. And we're now working on the bathroom of uh, the tile and we are putting the final touches on the kitchen. So we're, we're getting there. <laughs> wow. So you're doing yes, all the labor yourself for the most part. That's a dream. No, unfortunately we're not that skilled. Um, <laughs> we, we hired a company that it's a timber frame home and they built the actual timber frame at their uh, workshop and they would, they brought it out. So the building process started back almost about 12 months ago when we, when we dug the, the foundation. Um, and then the actual timber frame structure went up in July of this past summer. And that was quite the project because it involved, getting a massive crane and all these other things to to get these massive timbers up and set on the foundation. Um, and we just, we've been just pretty much playing contractor and, um, you know, Labor. Fi- yeah, finding the right, the right people and the people that want to work and that are available to do whatever project, uh, electrical or plumbing, 
I want to speak to that for a moment because I, I'm somewhat accustomed to the allure of this idea that farmsteaders and homesteaders go out and they build themselves, they build everything themselves. And, and I, that is such a respectable idea. And it's, it's also elusive and very elitist. The truth is, even the ones that you talk to when you get right down to it, when they say that, they say, oh, and their dad brought their brothers over and their excavation you know, machinery. And then their in-laws happened to live next door in an existing home and they ran some, some you know, extension cords. So we all had electricity. And what you come to find out when you get down to it is it always takes a village. And, you can, and if you try to isolate yourself in that process, you will find yourself inundated and buried with a pressure that no one person or two people or four people should, should carry themselves. And so I, I think it's really important to kind of bust up that myth a little bit and say, hey, like, it's okay if people do things that you don't know how to do. That's part of being honest about the process and being good at what you, what you do as we do as an individual or any one person has a skill set that they're really confident in. It just does not also give them the burden to be exceptional at everything. And I find that to be kind of one of the barriers to entry in this lifestyle of people think they have to be that and no one is. One thing that James and I have it in that and for I think we're grateful for and we have this as advantages, we're healthy, fit, and strong. So the truth of the matter is when it came to any sort of labor work, we did the labor. So if we if we had to move, you know, gosh, however many square feet, thousands and thousands of pounds of tongue and groove for the ceiling. Um, and the and the walls, we had to move it off the truck, or the forklift took it off the truck, but we took it from the pallets into the barn, which was a, a nice little trek away. We took it from the barn up on up into the house to stain it ourselves. We took the hickory off of the pallets into the barn, trekked it down the little hill, and then back up to the house when we had to install the hickory. So we had to do a lot of the manual grunt work if it was cleaning off the footers before they came to do the water sealant. You know, or hand shoveling gravel back into the hole that had been built after the cinder blocks had gone up for the basement walls. Just the ability to do all those little transitional physical tasks that you would otherwise have to pay someone to do that they're annoying, they're laborious, they're, you know, they're kind of sweaty and dirty. <laughs> we did that stuff. <laughs> And I think that's kind of what kept us moving forward and feeling part of the process, but also it honestly saved us money because nobody really wants to do that grunt work, especially skilled people that you bring in that have so much more to offer. Wow, that's really interesting. And those are some great tips in there. Um, so you're working on your house first. Do you have any plans for animals? Do you have any animals yet? Sounds like you've got a lot of experience with animals. Where do you, uh, do you have like um, a, a punch list, you know, a, a timeline in your mind? Yeah, we actually have um, two horses that have been purchased. They're just not on the property yet. Um, we are in the process of having the fencing put up and, that is going to hopefully be completed here in the next, we're praying in the next four weeks. Um, and we also have a, a mobile chicken coop that we have acquired and we're getting ready to get that set up so we can get some chickens on the property as well. 
2024 is all about hair sheep for us. So once we have these first two elements dialed in, then we're looking to acquire um, hair sheep. And we're just researching the different breeds. We, we just know of three right now. And we're obviously going to be turning to your education and your um, you know, different webinars at that point in time, because um, already we've learned from you just through your email. Um, so that's going to be an exciting journey as well. And we, we find that a lot of people around here who are starting this adventure, and we're not the only ones, ironically, this eastern board of Tennessee, right up against the this range of mountains, the Smokies and the and the Cherokee National Forest, we're border to North Carolina, and we're also in this corridor of incredible beauty. So many people have moved here with the same idea. Yeah. It's not a coincidence. It's really kind of strange, but it's also not a coincidence. So there's so many of them are doing what what we want to do, whether they've chose to live in a yurt or a, a you know a dome that you purchased from one of these companies, you know, on the West Coast or Canada that puts up like a dome tent and and, and have animals first. There's a lot of knowledge that's happening in real time. And we've just off the cuff, we've met three people that are also raising hair sheep. Uh, so it's interesting, newly raising hair sheep, like within the last year, six months to a year. <laughs> wow. And, and I think, I think they're all pregnant. And so they'll be, they'll be <laughs> a few more here in about a month or two. Yeah. No, it's an adventure for sure. That first lambing season, I'll never forget mine. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a beautiful story. We read your story. It was so beautiful. The big, a big thing around here are the Cooney Cooney pigs as well. I, you're yeah. probably familiar with the Cooney Coonies. Um, we, we're going to take it kind of slow. You know, we know how inexperienced we are. So we are going to, we're, like I said, in almost like a permaculture philosophy, we're, we're doing these zones. Like zone one is the house, like living situation. And then there's going to be raised beds right there for, you know, herb and butterfly gardens and, and your basic kitchen, you know, vegetables that you need to nab on a daily basis. And then we already have a plot down below in one of our pastures for a more large scale garden where we will do different kind of squashes and gourds, corn, pumpkins, um, larger, a larger zucchini plot. Then a few other things that we can grow in, in larger scale. And then we have a, a place set aside, a pasture set aside for, you know, growing hay. And then we have, of course, the pasture set aside for the horses. And some people say like, oh, horses are an unnecessary element. Hay burners. <laughs> setting, you know. Hay burners, they're called. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I wasn't going to say it, but that's exactly what they're called. Yeah. And and we don't feel that way. We We actually feel that they're really instrumental to to where we live we have many many trails that go back behind our home you know i think that cherokee national forest is what is it like 255,000 acres we can access so much of that only on horseback or we could buy motorized vehicles but we're we're not really motorized vehicles kind of people and so for us that's going to be that's a, a day off you know that's a an opportunity to kind of stop, slow down, enjoy um, this incredible part of the world that we've planted ourselves in. And so for us, it is a necessary part to slow down and to, and to really um, experience something 
on a different level. Okay. So my question for you is, are your reasons for doing this today still the same? Are your motivations, are they the same as when you first started looking for your reasons to move out of the United States to Costa Rica? Has anything changed through this whole journey? Well, I, I think the, the primary motivation is still the same. Um, I don't want to speak for Noel, but um, I go back to getting close to nature, and that was easily a possibility in Costa Rica because it's, you know, there's so much open open land in Costa Rica from what we've read. We've never been there. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and then also growing growing our food and having, you know, having the animals was not initially our primary, um, goal, but it's a, it's a necessity, I believe, um, for the, for what we're looking to do. So I, I think that part of it has, I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but I think that part of it has, has been what has changed as, as far as the, the, um, having animals on the property as well. I think the difference in the two lifestyles for me, the, the biggest shift is I traded in a surfboard for a four-legged equine for cowgirl life. <laughs> and that, I mean, they're both a great ride. One's just a lot more inexpensive, much more <laughs> like as in free. You just take your surfboard <laughs> and you paddle out. <laughs> uh, but but, I, but that's the biggest shift for me. And I don't, I don't have any regrets. I, I definitely don't. I, I feel that in the future, we will probably have a young family on our land that shares in our vision and our passion. And we can probably, you know, skirt off for a, a surfing trip if I just can't get it out of my blood. But I mean, I've, for me, it's, I've evolved so many times. I was a professional bike racer. I, I've lived a lot of lives. I, I often don't feel like I have to go back. So who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I might have llamas and, and mules in, in by, you know, 2026. <laughs> So if we can, can we kind of zoom out at a bigger picture? You mentioned that you had met a lot of other people of similar mind, but getting to where you are in your specific geographical location uh, through different ways and different approaches. So do you, this is, do you feel like this is a real opportunity or is this a fad? Is this uh is this the, uh, the zeitgeist among certain people today? Mm. What do you, what do you think about this from a, a big picture idea? What, what's causing this? And, and what do you think of that whole homesteading, farmsteading movement, which is just exploding? Yeah, I, I suspect a lot of it is the, the idea of, you know, people being a little bit more free, you know, the freedom's a big, a big part of it. And that was part of it for us. You know, we, we were looking to kind of step out of this, you know, and it's over said, but to step out of the systems and going into the grocery stores and not being happy with the quality of the food that we're finding in the stores and the exorbitant prices. I think all of that has a lot to do with this movement and moving forward, you know, to, to have a price of a dozen eggs go up three, you know, threefold is pretty discouraging when people are on, you know, incomes that aren't being 
you know, increased at that rate. So it's, I think it's really opening up the idea for a lot of people to move in this direction. I don't think it's a fad, but I do believe that uh, people will kind of understand how it's not an easy thing to accomplish. And as long as they're, you know, pretty gritty and willing to um, make some sacrifices in the beginning, I think, you know, people will be successful at it for sure. Okay. So what do you think are going to be the biggest benefits of this kind of lifestyle and the biggest burden? I think the number one benefit that comes to mind is running your own show. You know, and I want to leave the house for the day after a long day of work. Let's say I, I want to, you know, I'm hungry and I feel like starting dinner at four o'clock. I, I don't ask permission. I just go down and start dinner at four o'clock or on Friday, I had a little extra burst of juice and I stayed and worked in the house till, till after six 30. And that's my prerogative. And I think the freedom of that is a really beautiful thing. Had that self-direction is something maybe not everyone has uh, honed on in on or, or they're still cultivating it it's it's definitely and there's some days you have to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and look around you and and ride the wave of gratitude and and just do what needs to be done even though you'd like to sit by the fire and keep reading the book but I think that freedom like James was alluding to is it's a really good thing and he you know he came out of the banking industry and I came out of the mental health industry as a director of wellness and outreach for a counseling center. And not that those aren't, you know, necessary things per se, but um, we don't, we weren't obligated to stay in them always, right? We, we had an opportunity to, to step out. And the thing I, I see this, I see it kind of, not everybody's going to have that opportunity. And so I guess the real question is how do, how do we turn this movement and i i dare say call it a fad i wouldn't call it a fad but i think it's more of a movement how do we turn this movement to benefit more people um and i you know networking is a part of that creating alternative systems that allow people to access farm fresh food in a really streamlined way that's part of it that's going to happen i'm i'm pretty sure of it but the the benefit is really recreating something to replace a system that we all kind of witness break down hmm. and we don't even have to go into the reasons we all experienced it, whatever those reasons are. <laughs> and once you experience that, you realize like there has to be a shift. There has to be a shift. I think the burden in this is we don't know what all those solutions are. We don't know all the solutions now. We are in the midst of creating them. That's why I think people like you and people like us crave these conversations and to listen to these conversations because we're looking for the solutions. We're looking for ways to reconnect this lifestyle to more people and to people who truly understand that it is a necessity for the future. I, you know, we can sound a little bit like preppers when we get into that. Um, but we all have to eat <laughs> and we all want to have a quality of food that's going to sustain our health. Our health 
is the greatest commodity on the planet. You can work in corporate America for 50 years and retire fat, sick, and almost dead on half a dozen medications and then spend the rest of your life going to your specialists. So I think kids, especially young people, are realizing that's no life. And maybe they're not jumping into the workforce at the rate they once did. They're t- they don't like their debt. They don't like the, the systems that are put before them. College now is a real institution to kind of push you into a corporate model. It doesn't teach entrepreneurs. It doesn't educate the, self, um, the self-directed. And so I think a lot of people are stepping back and saying, hey, wait a second. We could, we could do this totally different. <laughs> and, we, and we need to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah. You said it. Um, regarding systems of supply chains and food supply chains specifically, um, I just did an interview, not to plug myself too much, but I just did an interview with Media Magazine where I talked about, you know, the the, the woman interviewing me asked me, you know, what I thought that was going to happen in agriculture in the next, you know, 5, 10, 15 years. And my hypothesis that I put out there was that it's going to go from centralized to decentralized. It's going to localize more because by necessity, with energy becoming more and more scarce and, uh, you know, oil production, we're a peak oil. We just are. Whether the, our listeners believe that or not, we we are. It's, it's this is not um, hyperbole or a question. It's math. Um that information is out there and renewables and alternate energy forms like solar and wind. Um, they're just not there at the level that our world, our oil thirsty world needs to sustain it. And it's not, it's, it's not in place. It's not ready to go. It isn't settled in and converted and there's not enough lithium on the planet to run all the batteries that everyone would need for solar. And, and I'm in central Ohio. It's gray all winter long. Solar's not an option for me. Right. So, right. I mean, you know, great. If you live in, in Phoenix, go with solar. Um, but it, that's, you know, every option is not available for every different geographical location. So that brings us to localization of supply chains and food, especially, you know, um, hierarchy of needs, food, shelter, water first, you know, then we'll talk about luxuries and, and specifics and nice to haves and things like that. But, you know, you can call a horse a hay burner, but when diesel is $10 a gallon and gas is $10 a gallon, um, because of some other conflict on the other side of the planet, you know, I'm going to find myself wishing that I had gone and gotten a horse. And by the way, when I do get horses, yeah, when I do get horses, um, I'm going to get myself, you know, some horses and I'm a horse person from way back. So, uh, hat tip to you guys both for doing that. They are hay burners, but they're worth it. Um, in my, (laughs) (laughs) um, but yeah, Yeah. I'm going to get a horse that can pull a log in addition to, pull something else and then also it's going to be able to carry a deer that maybe I've harvested on my land or is going to be able to also take me to go visit a friend you know exactly exactly yeah one thing I wanted to, to mention is you know here in this part of the world there's a really strong horse culture 
Yeah. And we have we have seen how it, it benefits the community. And there there's all the utilitarian you know, uses that will that can you can put into practice really easily. And some still do. There's people who still cart with horses here um, yeah. or haul with horses. And so you, you, there's still remnants of it and it's still working. It will work. You know, the Amish are such a beautiful example of that. It's, it's quite interesting. One thing you mentioned that was really kind of sparked my mind. You talked about how there's these necessities and then maybe luxuries after. And I think there's this distilling down process right now in in a certain element of the culture and that that culture is growing. I don't know what you call us, the farmsteaders, the homesteaders, those necessities when they're clean and pure are in fact luxuries. When you take water from your own spring or from a clean well on your own property that will forever be free as long as there's water running however many feet down under the ground, that is a luxury. (laughs) And then you you have the opportunity to purify that water and have it tested and, and know that it's clean and then drink it and realize it's one of the best tasting waters you've ever had and you never have to have it out of a plastic bottle again. That's a luxury. <laughs> you almost can't even define it. It just, it so becomes so a part of you because we're so much water, I, su- I suspect. But there are certain elements of this lifestyle that I consider incredibly luxurious. Uh, the smell of the earth, um, this, the, being a part of the seasons, being able to sit back with the season and realizing that it is nature's time to take a rest and to go in inside and to plan and that you're still on the path and it's okay. <laughs> you can't go out there in the thunder and lightning storm. You have to let it pass. Huh. I mean, when we were in corporate corporate world, we still had to drive to the office. Nobody said, hey, there's a thunder and lightning delay. It's a little dangerous on the roads. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I had to open the office. I, I had to open the counseling center if there was a sheet of ice. You know, counselors had to come in and so did the clients. So they would be billed if they missed their appointment and didn't give 24-hour notice. So we, the society doesn't allow for those long breaths, the exhales, the, the seasons in which we sit back and we take inventory and we make some adjustments and we communicate with each other and plan and, and kind of reevaluate and then plan again. And so that is a serious luxury. (laughs) And I think more people are craving that in their life. (laughs) And it may never be one of those fancy $30,000 purses, but I could care. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that. Um, you know, when we moved out of suburbia and moved to the farm life, it was like I stepped through Alice's looking glass is the best way to describe mm-hmm. it, you know. And I was still working corporate at the time. And I I I felt this dual life. I felt this this weird, I was in this weird place because I was too farmy for suburbia, but too city to be a farmer. And then I was first generation farmer. So I was surrounded with these other farmers who were multi-generational conventional farmers and Mm -hmm. they were friendly, but we had nothing in common. You know, they looked at me sort of funny. What are those things? Are they goats or sheep? (laughs) Oh, those are Icelandic sheep. No, what what is that? Are those, those fancy (laughs) boutique animals you've got? 
You know, you got some funny <laughs> ideas moving your animals every day. You already got a fence. Why don't you just ignore them? You know, why are you moving them around? Why are you hauling chickens around on wheels? You know, it's, it's this very sort, it's, it's like this, you know, in, in, in you're, you're not in the farming, the traditional, I don't say traditional because it is actually very traditional. It's like uh, 80, hundred years back traditional. So it's not in the right. historical conventional fertilizer dependent type of monocrop, big ag mechanized mm -hmm. agricultural farming, if you will. And I'm not doing beans, corn, wheat rotation on my front pasture. I'm not setting and forgetting two cows in that pasture, you know, um, it's right. different that way, but then it's not the rest of the mainstream. I mean, I, I was raised East coast. That's very built up. It's, it's very urban. It's very, um, you know, corporate, corporate, got to go to college, everything. And, and there's something to be said for that. That's great. Um, but I just, it never, it, it just, it didn't work for me. It didn't satiate that craving, that draw that I've always had my whole life to nature and experiencing the taste of a backyard grown tomato versus those horrible tomatoes that you get in, you know, Kroger in February that could pass the, the automobile bumper test, right? Like, it, it, like what, what do they say that it's to, uh, after you've grown your own backyard tomatoes, your heirloom tomatoes, right. um, grocery store tomatoes taste like disappointment or sadness. So, <laughs> I mean, it's like I've ruined food for myself forever. I've ruined, exactly. I've ruined the, I, 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 I ruined, I don't want to say ruined is the bad word, but it's like, I, I changed my idea of quality. It's like, what is good food? You know, I, I, that hap that, that change. And there's no going back after you've experienced it. There's just no going back. Uh, and you just, you want more. And I just, I just want more. And I find myself just leaping in and enjoying the plunge and the sensory experiences and the change of the seasons. You, you talked about all of those things, the pauses, the moments at the same time, it could be a driving blizzard with um, ice an inch thick. And if it's a level three snow emergency, I got to still put on my yak tracks and go out there. And I got to chip exactly. my way into the barn to help those, you know, those animals have their babies. If something's stuck on the webcam, you know, if the power goes out, <laughs> I still have to find ways to get water to the animals. You know, I, I, you know, there's, there's, there's a trade-off, but it's different. The animals can go hungry for an hour while I'm waiting for that tornado warning to pass and that that sideways rain to stop. You know, I, I have that option. I'm not going to get I don't have to get docked pay or, you know, get yelled at by my boss because I'm an hour late for my meeting. You know, it's it's I understand what you're talking about. It's it's um, yeah. a different set of trade offs. And the other thing I want to mention to people who might be listening is what Noel said about the new about bodily health. It's, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but it, it is, it is a real thing. There is something about nutrient density that our bodies notice that is present in the food that you have raised yourself. So I raise hair sheep and, you know, lamb chops. They're amazing. Um, but back when we lived in suburbia, you know, you could sit down and eat a whole chicken breast or 
you know, have like a big steak at a, at a steakhouse or whatever. I have two little lamb chops and my little lamb chops, these are hair sheep. These are not big woolies. These aren't big Australian breeds, right? This is, these are my little hair sheep. So when I say lamb chop, um, it's got a bone in the middle and it's probably mm, three inches wide and three inches long in a little triangle with a T-bone in the middle. All right. So mm -hmm. this is a little piece of meat. This is a little piece of meat. I'll have two of those. I'm done. I'm good. I'm like, oh, like my body says, mm, perfect. You know, you don't need you those know, portions because your body's like, oh, I, I get it. And I really believe it's from the nutrient density when you have this, the synchronized dance between healthy soils and ruminants and other animals that are fertilizing the soil and grass-fed meats and pasture-raised eggs. Like your body is getting the nutrients it needs. And not only am I healthier, but that satiation means that I eat much less and my body is healthier on less. And it's like, and there's also very little waste when you've grown everything yourself. You know, when I've taken that water out of my well, that's, you know, I'm not going to just dump it. I'm not going to leave the hose running. I, I I don't, I don't sprinkle my lawn. I don't, you know, there's, hmm. there's you know, even, <laughs> even our water that's left. And we have a, we have great water here. It's one of the reasons I bought my place, but you know, at the end of the dinner, the water that we haven't drank, we pour it into the dog's bowl. Like the dog gets our leftover water. Yeah, there's definitely uh there's a it's not it's not exactly secular, but it's uh creating systems that that feed onto themselves and continue the process to keep everything thriving. And and that's a lot of people want to take a course on permaculture or they, you know, they want to have a certified permaculture. Uh, you know, architect come out and tell them what to do. And I would say before they do that, just observe and, and, and observe again and observe at different times of the day and at different times of the year and create those systems yourself by thinking just like that. What would I do with the extra water? I would put it in the dog bowl or what would I do with the extra clippings from the brush hog? I would, you know, I would give it to you know, the chickens are better yet. I don't even have to use the brush hog after I create these, you know, rotational paddocks. So let the, the sheep do it for me and the chickens help them after that. So I think that there's a way that we can continue educating each other without having to bring in, you know, so many experts that we've experted ourselves out in our budgets to, a, you know, to a, um, a thin line. Um, mm -hmm. There's incredible books out there. There's incredible webinars out there. There's some things I think that we really do need to invest in terms of education and animal welfare is one of them. I'm, I've been playing kind of armchair vet and also like on foot vet to families around here that haven't had uh, the resources to call a vet. And just through the experience of taking care of animals, I have found that um, if you're willing and you're willing to educate yourself, there's a, there's much that we can do for them ourselves, even as a lay person who's willing to to get in there and get a little dirty. And then there's a point in time where you got to call the expert. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to mention something about the prerequisites for purchasing land. I just want to talk a little bit about that to anyone who's listening, who's really on the verge of making this kind of move. And they're thinking like, what should I, should I build? Should I remodel? How many acres do I need? I think that for us, one of the greatest things we did is we really pinpointed what was important to us. 
And I can only share with you my list real quick. And then people can kind of determine what their list is. How much we were willing to spend, A. How much land or approximately how many acres we were hoping for, uh, like the range. And then from there, I said, I really want to be up against national forests. I'm going to do everything I can to look at properties that put me in a position to kind of have a known situation of major backyard forest with wildlife. That was a big one for me. I didn't know if I could find it or if we'd be able to find it in our price range, but I was hoping. The other ones that were absolute necessities were water on the property, hopefully a creek and a spring, water rights and mineral mineral rights, some pasture enough to sustain what you want to grow in terms of food and and growing large and healthy animals, but some forest so you have your own forest to to rely on, whether it's going to be wood for your wood-burning stove or structures that you want to build later on in, in terms of even just lean-tos or woodsheds or, you know, who knows if it's even just a little meditation perch on the top of your hill, um, some sort of wood supply that is your own. Those things were really important to us. And so having that known parameter list of, hey, this is a, these are necessities, these are hopefuls and these are dreamy kind of like almost like permaculture and like like concentric circles where it's like this is the important nucleus this is the surrounding circle and this is the dreamy circle that surrounds that you know organizing just your thinking going into it will help you so much you don't have to build a house you may not have the bandwidth to build a house we'd sold everything we owned so we were sitting on money that was while money was inflating the economy was inflating itself so quickly that our money was becoming you know, less and less valuable, we needed to to put that money into something and buying land and building a house was our best option. Not everybody has that bandwidth. Finding a little farmhouse and remodeling it slowly, already having water, electricity, you can't imagine how difficult it is in these times to get those things to you <laughs> when everybody's trying to get out of the city and go rural. You'll go into the utility department. They're like, yeah, we'll see you in nine months. <laughs> so so know, know those barriers of entry going in and what the backup time is when you make that decision. Do you have the nine months to, to wait? Do you have a place to live? We were living in a tent where we had black bears sniffing at our skulls in the middle of the night, wondering if we were edible because we maybe didn't get all the peanut butter off our fingers before we went to bed. So you, you have to kind of know, you know, what you can withstand. Do you have a little place to be before you, your build is ready? Can you build a tiny little bunkie on your land to live in with a wood burning stove before the house is ready? Can you, can you get a little farmhouse that's ancient and needs some work and then build your, your dream home on a different part of the land over the course of the next five or 10 years. So don't pinhole yourself, know what your requirements are, but know that there's a hundred thousand different ways to do it. And you don't have to model anybody else's dream. You get to build it and make it yourself. That's part of not being on the payroll list. (laughs) You get to do it all on your own and, and have fun with it, you know, have fun with it. When we designed our house, we had such a We'll always have that together. We had such a good time with it, and it changed dozens of times because we made mistakes, and out of those mistakes came something more beautiful and more more in alignment uh, because we were able to bend and bow like the willow. We, we couldn't always be so stiff and straight like the oak, although we love a good oak too, but you know what I mean. <laughs> 
were you able to get everything that you'd hoped for? Did you have to make any trade-offs in those priorities? We actually, um, there was, uh, during the building process, there was a few things that we we did kind of have to change, but it worked out to being a blessing. Um, for one, actually, one of the big things that Noel was wanting was a, was a bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, with the size of, we, we, you know, we built a pretty small cabin and the bathroom was really small and initial plans were to just do a, a shower in there. And, I knew she really was hoping to to have a bath a bathtub in there, so we actually ended up making it work um, with the foot the footprint that we had. So there was just certain things in the process that um, didn't go to to plan, but ended up working out. I designed the whole house to not have a basement. I'm used to Ohio wet damp basements, and I thought, forget that. We're not even going to have that problem in the back of our mind. No basement for us. So we designed this 900 square foot timber frame cabin, old Appalachia barn raising, like almost like an ode to this part of the world and the way they've done things for hundreds of years. Super excited about it. And then I started to think, where's the washer and dryer going to go? Where's the deep freezer going to go for the, the meats that we harvest? We have to have a basement. Last minute, we're plunking down money for a, a basement dig, basement walls. And we had no intention of doing that. So it was a big budget item that came up and it cost us about twice as much as we anticipated it would cost. But the beautiful thing is, is my husband was so, he really had a great idea. He said, now that we're doing this, let's build a proper root cellar. So in that basement, we put an, an intake for cool air and an outtake for warm air with the, the right parameter PVC and a cap, you know, a, a cap on the end so critters can't get in and out. And it's within the basement, which is just a square, 24 by 24 feet, we had added this little bump out because we needed somewhere to put the wood-burning stove and an entry point to take off your boots. That bump out footprint continues into the basement. The basement is the exact footprint of the house. That bump out has become our refrigerated root cellar with full insulated walls and an exterior door. And it is its own humidifier, its own, you know, uh, constant in the temperature and we're going to be able to store so much food there. So that was kind of like a, a happy accident. Um, I didn't design the house. I was so intent on not having a basement. I didn't design the house according to like real needs. And when we had to put, put down so much more money than we anticipated, it turned out to give us something that we're going to end up putting a lot of use uh, to, and, and we'll have such gratitude for that for a long time to come. Wow. That's, that's a neat little, uh, that's a neat little tip and happy situation. Um, what equipment have you found that you need on your, uh, farmstead homestead, um, that you didn't expect? Like what, what do you, what, what can you not live without? That's a surprise to you. Well, I, I will tell you to back up since we, had sold pretty much everything we we did end up buying things we already had <laughs> that's the unfortunate part but uh you know a chain a chainsaw is in in our neck of the woods with about 35 acres of of woods is a necessity um that was something that we definitely needed to to purchase we 
we didn't know if we were going to need a tractor right away, but since we didn't have the animals yet and the pastures were getting overgrown, we ended up finding a tractor in Ohio and we hauled it down to Tennessee and we got a great deal on it that had a, a bush hog on it. Um, that worked out well and it's, it's an old 1953 Ford Jubilee and it's still running. <laughs> it's beautiful. Oh, you got a Jubilee. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. My favorite my favorite tool is the machete. I can't haul that chainsaw, but it drives me crazy not to be able to do the clearing that I want. So I have a, a machete and I will go in and clear away um, any sort of brush up close to the old tobacco barn. We have a 120 year old tobacco barn on the property. And I like to keep that thing um, just kind of free from the vines and the weeds that like to grow up and pull boards off the walls. And so I use that machete all the time. <laughs> I get down and I clear off the, the brush that's close to the creek. So the horses will have access to our, our creek that runs on the pro- We have two creeks on the property, but one is direct is fed from a, a really nice cold spring. And so that one is the one the horses will have the most access to. Um, and, and eventually the hair sheep will have access to that same Creek as well. And they'll do a great job of clearing it for me when they get here. <laughs> I'd say a wheelbarrow is very important as well. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> uh, yeah. So- a lot of the tools that, that we had gotten rid of, we are acquiring and actually some of them we're finding that people don't have use for, like we have friends uh, an hour from our property. Um, they're actually helping us with our electrical, which is a blessing. And um, they had horses a few years back and they had an old barn that nothing in the barn that they're using anymore. They had an old wheelbarrow in there. So there's c- certain tools that we've been able to acquire again without actually having to put money back into it. And I, I did a lot of free kind of common vetting for neighbors around this area. And so I felt very comfortable sending out a group message. Do you guys have any old pressure treated posts or any sort of fencing you want to, you know, donate to the project or we can pay cash? And I was surprised lots of people perked up, people that we had helped in the past and said, hey, come over. We've got, you know, half a dozen pressure treated posts or we've got this fencing in in a roll of wire. So kind of being part of this and it depends on how close you are to neighbors. The average neighbor around here has anywhere from, you know, 10 to, to 100 acres. Um, be good. Be a good neighbor. It always pays off. There's so many opportunities to barter and to trade without, you don't even have to use those words. It's just kind of like common knowledge. If you have something you can give and do, whether it's a service or if it's a skill or, you know, excess that you could donate it comes around tenfold. I, I tell you that it's like, it's just some sort of universal law. I'm sure of it. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. So have other people come to you asking for help? Well, obviously you said the the animal care, you had some experience with that, but have you been able to start helping others and they're, if they're further back behind than you know, your own progress? Well, I, an example would be, so we're new members, well, I guess we haven't joined yet, but we um, have been going to this uh, cowboy church. Um, it's literally called it, that. It's called the cowboy church, Crossroads <laughs> Cowboy Church. <laughs> and, you know, people wear cowboy hats and they bring their dogs. And it's just it's just uh, the people there are amazing. And we've we've met so many wonderful people. And um, the people that we just uh, met with actually that have started with the, the animals first and they 
they put up a, a dome, kind of a tent dome. They, um, the, the gentleman is a trade, uh, he's, he's trade, uh, journeyman tradesman. So he, he does plumbing, electrical and all di- different types of works. And we worked out a, a my, like kind of a, almost like a barter system where we will be helping them with their build and in return for them helping him, him helping us with our plumbing. So it's, it's just kind of finding places, you know, people that have certain skill sets and, and working together instead of trading with the dollars, trading with your, your own, you know, your own uh, energy. Your energy yeah. yeah. Energy is a resource, especially when you become a farm center home center, you're going to have more time than money. And so it's, it's important to, to donate that time and energy in, in, in productive ways, not just for yourself, but if you can get involved in, in some community. And I mean, you have to balance that, right? Because there is so much work you have to do at your own place. Sometimes I'm, I say to James, like, tell people, tell the, them they can't come visit. We can't take another hour out to do a tour. <laughs> yeah. But I'm terrible about that. I mean, the truth is, it's, it's always good, but you have to balance that, you know. To, yeah, because it. it it can get overwhelming because there's so many different projects going on at the same time. But unless for your own mental health, unless you do step back and take the time to, you know, to visit and, and just, you know, maybe go for a hike and fellowship. Exactly. Share a meal. Those are all important things that kind of keep us moving forward in a healthy way. And grounded too. Right. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Wow, that's really nice. Do you find yourselves getting lonely? No, not at all. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. we, <laughs> it's amazing. Because uh, you know, a lot of the people we have met are through, um, you know, obviously the through community. the the community and the yeah. in the church. Um, we also have a small little church up the road from us that we we met the pastor when we first moved there. And he has all this excavation equipment. And he gave us a great deal on digging the, digging the basement. You know, there's things like that. You meet people in the community that are willing to help um, and actually help save you a lot of money on, on some of your projects. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you fund everything? I mean, obviously you have a big nest egg saved up, but going forward, are you planning on making a go just off of your farmstead or are you living a, and do you have your own businesses rolling on the side? We have always had a kind of a side gig per se. When I moved out of the in-person model, the brick and mortar model of counseling, I maintained a coaching business um, and I still do that. I still have a half a dozen coaching clients and I spend a lot of time coaching people that live in um, the standard model of living. They live in it and they suffer the health repercussions from it. I spent a lot of time coaching people how to step out of those systems. I I really think in a weird way, I've become a system disruptor. How do I educate for people to step out of their own system, disrupt their own systems to create better health? James and I have also been working together for many, many years in a process called mediation, whether it's corporate mediation or divorce mediation. We actually help people dissolve unions in a peaceful, equitable way saving them thousands of dollars and litigation. And that we will continue to do because we find it incredibly necessary. And it is, um, it's not easy by any means, but it's a necessary work. And we really believe that it is 
it's giving to it's giving societally and that it's giving a different road, a whole new road. Again, another system disruption. Um, it's giving a whole new pathway to resolution as opposed to uh, fighting it out, li- literally fighting it out, you know, tooth and nail attorney against attorney processes that can take three to five to 10 years. Um, we can help people move on with their lives in a really efficient uh, time frame, much more than the court system. And it's all legal and it's all available to to anyone who wants to go that route. And most people don't know that. And when they do, they're like, ha, why isn't everybody doing this? So we know that's a huge emerging market and we're going to stay, um, you know, dedicated to that and helping people with that. And James has a financial advising company um, that he's been, he's been financially advising people as a fiduciary um, for 20 years, <laughs> over, over 20 years. And my old man, you're not yeah. that old. So I, yeah, I do a lot of the financial planning work for, um, households and businesses and uh, obviously the retirement side and uh, budgeting and all that fun stuff. So I've been um, working independently on that for about 10 years now. But prior to that, I was with, I was with, I started out with banks and, and moved to a private practice after that. One thing I love about James's work is he's committed to helping families invest in a way that aligns with their their morals and their ethics. And a lot of investors, they kind of just go for the bottom line, but, but we, he feels very strongly that you can invest your money and also feel good about it and sleep at night. And so he kind of helps people design investment portfolios in a way that they also feel very good about what they're doing, um, which is not an easy, it's not an easy practice. It's much easier to just kind of give a nice algorithmic swath across, across the fortune 500. And so he, he does a really good job at, um, at helping people design something that, that not only works, but is in alignment with, with who they are as a family and, and speaks to their legacy as a family. Um, so yeah, we, we put all, all the money that we had saved up and we had been saving for a long time. We're both savers by nature. That's kind of our you know, we're, we're reduce, reuse, recycle kind of people, even back in suburbia. And we we lived very simply and we saved money and then we sold everything we had. So um, and we also worked very hard with the type, type of people that always, you know, you know, we grinded it out when we had the opportunity to and we and we saved. We are spending all of that uh, every dime. <laughs> just uh, just want to be really transparent about the fact that this Stuff is not uh, inexpensive, especially in the, this inflammatory economy that we're in. And, you know, we did a spreadsheet early on. James is like a spreadsheet kind of guy. And we, you know, put in the numbers and we spent 20 to 30 percent more than we had anticipated across the board. Yeah, it got to a point where I was like, all right, I'm just going to throw the spreadsheet away. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just. It's it's actually causing more stress than it's than it's helping. <laughs> we based all the numbers off of a, like a 2020-2021 analytics for what those type of things should cost in this part of the world, and and they those numbers just were no longer accurate. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I guess you think about the ten percent year over year inflation, and it's been a few years since. So, uh, James, sounds like your spreadsheets are right on. <laughs> Yeah, it, it also it goes to the fact that we're super green on building in general. Uh-huh. So you 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 try to you throw that into the the hat and 
it's, it's a big learning curve and we have learned a lot. And, uh, you know, if somebody came to me and said, Hey, I'm looking to do homesteading or farmsteading, do you have any advice? And I would tell them don't build. <laughs> oh. I, would, I would say, find something that you can renovate and have power electric, all your needs met. So you can kind of focus on, on what we're trying to start here soon we feel like we've spent the last 12 months just trying to get our infrastructure set up which is fine and we have no regrets but um if i had to do it over i would definitely try to find a property that has something that we could be in and feel like you know we could start working on the other projects without um all of our energies going to building the house is that because of a time constraint or just what, why, what's your reason for that? I mean, cause obviously it would cost more. Yeah. It's, it's a combination of, um, because we, we actually have neighbors up the street that are, are building as well, but they, they found property that had an old farmhouse that was livable and it wasn't like it, co it cost that much more for the property to have that mm. uh, because the properties here aren't that, I mean, they're not that expensive compared to other areas of the country. Um, so they were able to not feel like they had to rush into building, even though they are building now, they, it's just, it's more comfortable living. You know, we, we basically fill five gallon, five, uh, one gallon jugs of water every day and, and haul it back to our property just so we can have. <laughs> we shower at the ranch we shower at the local church and we shower at the ymca about 20 minutes away so we don't have yeah, inefficiency <laughs> yeah the inefficiencies of all of that um although we we take it in stride uh, th there was probably another way of going that would have been more efficient it's it'll be an adventure and something we will laugh about for the rest of our lives i mean living in the mud and and living without water and this week we have the electric and we have the well and this week they connect the electric to the well. They have to come out and program that, um, and it has to be certified that connection. And then we'll have two well thickets, very like right on the land, right there, but one by the bunkie and one by the, the the cabin. So that's all coming. It's all coming together. There was again the, speaking to the influx of people moving to this specific part of the world. There was a backlog for wells that were mm. it was incredible. I mean, we must have waited. Yeah. We literally were on the wait list for, I believe it, initially they told us it was going to be eight months. It ended up being 13 months. <gasps> yeah. What? So that's the kind of thing you have to take into consideration when you're, when you're going somewhere that doesn't have infrastructure. Wow. That is so unexpected. Wow. What an experience. Yeah. So that, that was, that was challenging. And then once we did have the well drilled, it was, it was waiting for the electrical to get set up. So that put it back a little longer. We were already accustomed to filling up our one gallon jug. So we just kept doing it. It's just, I think we would have got more, more things done during the day without those extra steps. Yes. Yeah, so it just becomes such, yeah, exactly. So many, so many more steps and quite a bit more laborious when you have to drive or hike to get water. <laughs> Well, no wonder you talk about waters being such a luxury. My goodness. <laughs> yeah, it comes out of a faucet when I turn it. Oh my gosh, power comes yeah. out of the yeah. it comes out of the wall. It's this thing that and if it's you know, warm, you if never it's think warm out of a faucet, 
If it was if it's warm out of a faucet, it will bring tears to my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. This has been amazing. And like James said, it is honed a kind of gratitude in us that you just mm-hmm. you just it forever impacts your life. It forever, you know, gives you this perspective of of what's important and um you know, we, we love, we were the type of people who loved camping. We went out West and went to all the national parks and we, we got the little app on our phone where you could camp for free in the, in the national lands. And, you know, we, we filtered the water by hanging the bag from the tree and we tent camped, you know, and people were like, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> so, so we kind of like Boy Scouts kind of entered into this with just this chipper, like this isn't, we just didn't expect the adventure to last this long. <laughs> You'll have to call, we'll have to chat again when we're in the house and we have a first crop and we're like, it isn't a mud bog. We have like paths and gravel and a real driveway. And yeah, it'll be, we'll have a whole different outlook. I'm going to pencil you in right now. Once a year, check in on James and Noel. <laughs> <laughs> follow this, got to follow this journey. This is amazing. All right. So what do you, what is your dream farm setup? I mean, you talk about, you know, talking in the future, what, what do you, what is your, what do you, what's your picture of the future? We, we've made it. I mean, we really, we went, really went big. I couldn't ask for anything more. This is a dream to me. Honestly, we wake up and we hike the whole 50 acres with the dogs that rescued us. She just, she just showed up two weeks ago in poor state and she's, since been spayed and gained seven pounds. And we, we just said, you know what? You're sticking with us little thing. We hike her the full 50 acres every morning when we get up and I cannot hike that property without thanking God. I can't hike it without saying, my husband thinks I'm a broken record. I said, this is amazing. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this beautiful? I mean, I'm so ecstatic to be here in this wilderness up against these mountains um, with incredible wildlife, bears and cougars and deer and all and elk and all of it. Um, this is a dream. Whatever transpires from here, we've already atri- achieved the dream. Whatever mistake we make, whatever success we have, we are already in it. And how, however it grows, whether our kids, half of our kids move or two of our kids move there's three of them already making hints to it. So we have some good things coming up. Um, we're still living it because they're always going to have this place to come to with their grandkids. And I have a feeling when they show up, they probably won't leave for three weeks. It'll be like grandma and grandma camp at the farm, you know, Summers <laughs> so with it's you already guys. the dream. Yeah. It's already the dream. I mean, we, we've created it. Um, I just, I, I can't wait for it all to unfold, you know, one year at a time, lots of patience, but, Wow. So grateful. That's amazing. So with your kids and, and looking forward into the future, what, what do you think that uh, the next generation is going to see, um, you know, growing up or being around parents who have done something like this, but what do you kind of, and again, this is pie in the sky, just sort of throwing a dart out there into the future. What, what do you, what do you sort of see going forward, like 10, 20 years? Well, I'll give you an example of um, neighbors that we just, well, we met from Cowboy Church, but they actually live right down the street from us. They have a, how old is their son, Sean? 
16. He's 16 and he's homeschooled and he is learning so much from just being out in this area of everything from um, putting up fencing to building a barn, like all of these hands-on um, experience that he's learning from being out here that you won't le- learn in a conventional type setting for school um, is, is priceless. And he is loving it. Like he's lit up when you talk to him, he's just loving it. He's got, he's got his own little, um, they built a pump house and they, they, they built it a little larger so he can put his bedroom in there. And he's got, he's got his friends. They all play guitar and they have recording sessions in there. And it's just, just to listen to the stories that, that he tells us, it just, he, you could tell he's just excited. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that from people that, um, expose their kids to this type of lifestyle. They're, these kids are so articulate and capable. I mean, a 15-year-old, a 14, almost 16, 14-year-old, and 11-year-old, we proposed to them about our fencing for our property, and they have, like, schematics drawn up and, like, price estimations and the math and the diet. And we're just like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> these are these homeschool kids who are they're hands-on, they're smart, and they take on projects like you know, they could, they can solve the world's problem. So we pray that when our, our little combined group of kids, all five of them come and experience the, the homestead, whether it's for Thanksgiving or a long holiday or a big summer break, um, we're going to get a grandchild or two that gets it. And what's going to happen is we'll, we're, we're going to leave this land to all of our kids for them to to have their vacation homes, eventually they'll all put a cabin on it. It's just too easy for them for free to build a little vacation cabin. And there's going to be a couple grandkids that take it on, like really take it on. And we'll, we pray that we get to see that before our end of life. And, and we'll know, we'll know who's going to get the big house and who's going to run the show, right? <laughs> so the kind of steward, the kind of steward that loves it and, and has a, you know, uh, the spirit of compassion and, and equitability and they, and they want to invite the family in, but they also have the grit and the, the self-direction to keep, keep things moving the way they have to move. Wow. Wow. That's really touching. So, um, wow. Well, I got to tell you, um, this has been an hour and a half now. It has flown by and I have really, really enjoyed talking to you both. Um, are, are you guys documenting your journey anywhere? Are you going to be, is, is there any way that our listeners can follow you or support your, your side businesses? Well, we, we actually are not um, too savvy on the social media. So we, we haven't done anything with YouTube or Instagram, as far as documenting, we have done some videos of the build process and maybe eventually we will put something together. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's nothing really specific, but as far as our businesses, um, we can definitely send you, uh, I don't know the best way of doing that. We can send you our links for that. Yeah, com. That's winwinbymediation.com. And Anyone can get a hold of us through the website, but honestly, Judith, you can give them our phone number. If somebody wants to talk to either one of us directly, we would love to to chat. Um, you know, t- time is valuable, but sharing knowledge and and making connections is 
is even more valuable. The truth is, James says we're not too tech savvy. We both had big social media accounts and ran social media for other, I ran social media for the company I was with prior. We made a deliberate choice to step out of it, um, probably because we are not in the, we're not in the business of perpetuating ideals or, um, or facades. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I have nothing against people who do it. I love it. I love it. Um, I'm not looking at it right now or paying attention to it. Um, but I'm really cultivating like in-person relationships, like, like hugs and smiles and, and really getting to know people on, on a level that takes some real time. And so it's kind of, it's a choice, but that said, it doesn't mean I don't want to connect. So I, you can honestly give my number and James's number at the end of this podcast. And we will happily, if they want to text first and we can set up a, a 15, 20 minute talk, we're happy to do that. Um, we have had so much fun chatting with you. We honestly already look forward to the next time. And we're going to be following your email newsletter, Judith, and signing up uh, for one of your seminars about hair sheep, uh, maybe an intro, maybe an intermediate. We'll see where we are um, at the time when we're ready to sign up. We cannot wait to learn from you. Just some of the things I've read in your newsletters already have just sparked such wonderful um, ideas and direction for me in regard to raising animals. Um, such an exciting, exciting new adventure. That part is is really one I'm greatly looking forward to. Well, thank you very much for that. I really appreciate it. And James, I'm I'm sure that someone listening to this is going to say, "Oh, I want to talk to James because um, uh, I want him to help me with my spreadsheet because I want to start a homestead too." So. <laughs> I can definitely see there's some opportunity for you in the future, maybe in this little uh, niche area, who knows, but yeah, it's all about sharing the knowledge. It's all about sharing skills and experience. I started, I, I, I had, didn't know any name of any breed of sheep, you know, when I first um, got my farm. So this is knowledge that is accessible to everybody. You have to pursue it. You know, it doesn't get taught in school. Um, but there's, there's a a thriving, growing community out there that's showing, um, a lot of interest in helping each other and supporting each other and teaching each other and learning from each other. And there's a lot of bad info out there on social media and there's a lot of ideals being painted. I mean, you're exactly right, Noel. Um, you know, you got to kind of sift through it and wade through the noise, but, um, social media is like, you know, it could be a great tool and it could also burn stuff down. So yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, that, that's why we're, I mean, anybody that's interested, like Noel said, we're more than willing to talk to them over the phone and give them a, a most accurate picture of what our experience has been. And everybody's experience is going to be different, but helping somebody know some idea of what they can most likely anticipate going into some type of a homesteading or farm setting adventure um, you know, having a more accurate description of what that looks like is yeah, is, yeah. is better than painting the picture. Of and, it. and James has his, you know, his budget background and fiduciary, he could describe it better than I can, but he has a really good sense of helping someone understand what they can and can't do with the resources they have at their disposal. And if your dream is, if your dream is really to do this without getting involved in debt and, and the banking system, um, which we feel is the it's a, the only the, only way we want to operate. I mean, it, not it's not accessible for you know a lot of people, especially the younger demographic. But 
Um, it's, you know, at, even starting with a small piece of land, whether that's a two acre parcel, um, it can be, a, it can be achievable. Absolutely. So we would love to, to help anyone who has a drive and, and direction, even if they just have questions and they think like, maybe this is completely, completely out of my realm. Um, we, we'd like to help for sure. We've been so blessed and we definitely want to reinvest in others who, you know, have this, this same desire, burning desire. We're, we're an odd bunch, <laughs> but we got to encourage each other. You know, we got to honk each other on like the geese honk the leader on as they make that, that large, they know that, that expansive commute. That's what the honking's for. They're up there saying to the, the lead goose, you can do it. <laughs> Thank you for the echelon. Thank you for letting us draft off you. Keep going. <laughs> so we gotta draft off. E- we have to draft off each other, and um, and then at some point, what happens is someone slides to the front and they and they lead for a while. You know, so um, it's it's good system. It's still it's a good world, and we're still grateful to be in it. And we hope to make it a tiny bit better if we can. All right. Well, thank you very much. This has been super fun. Okay. Thank you you so much for having us on. And we really. We appreciate you and we love what you're doing. And we're so grateful to learn from you. Thank you, Judith. Thank you for coming on.